I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. This is an audio podcast exclusive edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome Julian Zelizer, professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, a CNN political analyst, co-host of Politics and Polls, and author of the forthcoming book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of the New Republican Party. Welcome, Julian. I'm glad to have you. Thanks for having me on the show. Julian, there is going to be a geopolitical element in this 2020 campaign. It appears that the Trump campaign and Donald Trump are going to try to tie Joe Biden to to China in a negative way that perhaps re-engages some of the xenophobia, nationalism, nativism that was directed at Mexicans and Latin Americans and, of course, Muslims during the 2016 campaign. Do you think it will be effective? Well, I think it'll be effective with his supporters. His his supporters, it's an ongoing story of will something be effective? Uh, We wonder if his supporters will go for that kind of argument again, and then they do. Uh, So I think in, in part of Trump's coalition, these arguments uh, will resonate, but I'm not sure it's the kind of argument that will get much further. I don't think people right now uh, are open to arguments really about where this came from uh, and arguments about uh, kind of conspiratorial arguments about how this was uh, hoisted on us. I think what they're concerned about is getting their lives back to normal. So the measure in the election won't be uh, arguments about what's Uh, China's role in this. The argument will be which candidate has a better plan to get us back to normal and to make sure that normal lasts for the next few years at a sustained level. I think that's the issue in front of us. Back to normalcy is certainly a theme that you have reiterated, um, and, and it has a history in American political life. If you look at transitions from where we are today to a Biden presidency. There are three that come to mind, and I wanted you to weigh in on the relevance of of these three um, for Biden specifically and how he ought to reveal himself to the American people at this moment and campaign, even in a virtual context. There is the transition from Andrew Johnson to Ulysses S. Grant. There's the the transition from Herbert Hoover to FDR. And there's the transition from Eisenhower to Kennedy, and and that may seem an unusual one to broach, but if you are reviving themes of the Obama coalition, and if you are also a Catholic candidate and looking to rev up a certain coalition, it may not be inconsistent with some of Biden's particularities. Uh, How do you see those three historical analogies to what this transition may have to look like? That's interesting. I mean, those are are three very different themes. Uh, One is about the end of a a political era in some ways, the um, kind of fading away and and beginning uh, of the collapse of the Reconstruction period uh, into the the post-Reconstruction era. And and you can kind of think of this period like that, meaning we're at the end of this uh, long era of conservatism that started in the 1980s. And, and had the pandemic not happened, I, I think you could really see the election through that lens. 
uh, and and what would an, a new era potentially look like even with an older candidate? What would a, a new more kind of democratic uh, era, um, uh, how would it be imagined after conservatism exhausted itself with President Trump? Uh, obviously, now we're though closer to Hoover to FDR. We're, we're in a moment of total societal collapse. I think it's not an exaggeration to compare this to the Great Depression, the totality of the experience for Americans, the totality of the devastation that has been wrought, not just in terms of people who have suffered uh, with their lives uh, or who've suffered through illness, but the economic damage is just immense. And, and I think, you know, that was the question with FDR. Could this president, could this governor from New York actually have the capacity uh, to rebuild the country, uh, not just to stir new confidence, but to put together policies and institutions that would move us into the new era. And, and, and I think we're definitely in that moment, again, even though our candidate is older and, and, and probably more predictable in, in the kinds of things he would try. And finally, the Eisenhower Kennedy is really interesting. I'm not sure how much of that will actually end up being part of this election. Four months ago, that was a perfect, I think, way to think of this too, uh, that uh, perhaps a, a new kind of Democratic Party was emerging uh, with new ideas, new policies, a new base. Uh, certainly, we saw that in the Sanders coalition. But I don't know how much of that will be at work right now. Uh, I think the next Democratic president, if, if the president is Joe Biden, he's going to inherit a total mess. And the first few years will be about fixing things uh, rather than starting a new era or building and nurturing a new coalition. Julian, I think you perfectly identified. There is no cooker, cookie cutter analogy, but I'm, I'm uh, glad that you were patient with us to think through each one of those parallels. Um, and uh, that's a very helpful historical overview. Just to go back to the question of this campaign, there's, there's not anything inevitable about a challenger winning. Incumbency can be a potent tool. And with respect to the first question of this idea uh, that the Republican campaign now may or may not hinge on this attack on a Beijing Biden they recently publicized a website attacking a Beijing Biden, attempting to rev up the, both the conspiracy element and the connection between Biden and the Chinese government. Um, you know, it, it seems perfectly clear that if you're operating in that hardball environment, uh, you can't assume anything. You know, a lot of people assumed wrongly that Hillary Clinton would not have to compete with the linguistic hardball um, and that she could be above the fray with decorum and decency, and that would that would uh, ultimately um, be what she needed to to prevail, um, and that alone. But with Biden, it, you know, he is a different political personality that is much more appealing to the heart of the country. Nevertheless, do you think it's will be important in response to any kind of insinuations about? his connection to China, to very explicitly call out the death that was preventable with respect to the pandemic and the ineptness and incompetence that really enabled mass casualties here at home. I mean, do you see a necessity for him to respond to Beijing Biden by saying, well, you're Donald death, 
or these are Donald's deaths, um, a, a sort of modern equivalent notion of, hey, Donald, how many kids, how many Americans did you kill today? Invoking, of course, what was said about LBJ with American youth. How necessary might that be? It will be very necessary. Uh, there's two parts to the question. The first part, I think, uh, certainly is something Democrats should be thinking about. Uh, to the assumption this all falls apart on, on President Trump, especially now as his polls are going down, uh, I think is uh, not the smartest assumption to make. Uh, incumbents tend to do well. Uh, the power of incumbency has been immense. Uh, usually re-election has happened in the last few decades. Uh, and now Biden is going to be campaigning, barring some dramatic reversal of everything in the next few months where by August uh, we're up and running in a totally normal fashion, which no one is saying is going to happen. He's going to be campaigning without campaigning. He won't be able to do the kinds of rallies that he thrives in. He won't get a lot of the television attention that naturally you'd think uh, or we would expect would happen right around now uh, through next November. Uh, politics has been totally crowded out by the pandemic, uh, meaning non-pandemic related politics. Uh, and so he has a, a huge challenge uh, ahead of him where it's easy to imagine that President Trump uses the power of incumbency, the power of commanding the news right now uh, to just bludgeon uh, Biden. And uh, the ad uh, that he released um, kind of using an interaction with an Asian American to raise the insinuations you're talking about, that's just tip of the iceberg. We're gonna see this on steroids, all sorts of uh, attacks on, on Vice President Biden, former Vice President Biden, his character, um, we can just imagine where this is all going. I'm sure Hunter Biden will come back into the story. The second part uh, is also important in that the assumption now is the blame will fall on the president in the end. Um, and I'm not sure that's true. I think part of what's going to happen in the next few months are Americans will become increasingly anxious about living like this. It's, it's not a normal way to live. Uh, and people are suffering economically. Uh, health and, and the economy are the two issues. And the president will turn this against Democrats. You can predict it. You can already see it. He's going to say they're not opening the economy. I tried. And so uh, the Democrats have to hit hard. Uh, they will have to be very direct, very blunt about who's to blame and what's gone wrong. And the LBJ uh, kind of memory, the chance about him being the cause of the war, I think that is exactly the kind of line of attack that Biden and other Democrats need need to think of. They cannot do this uh, in a soft manner um, because I think then they will be uh, perilously close to losing the election in November. Julian, I think inside the Biden camp, there, there are kind of contradictory wins here because there is the camp that would want to elevate his decency to the point of abandoning the hardball. It's not clear if that kind of message will emanate from his campaign. It's not clear it will emanate from a supporting entity, super PAC, or a third party political venture. Um, but you're saying pretty decisively that it's a necessity, whether he does it himself or there are other political actors who, who do it as a surrogate for him, 
Yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, uh, politics is tough. Uh, as you know, James Baker said, it, it ain't beanbag. And, and, and especially in this moment, uh, President Trump will come after uh, Joe Biden with hammer and tongue fiercely. And the idea that uh, Biden can win by just being decent uh, and avoiding those kind of counterattacks is just totally misplaced. You can be tough in politics and be humane, though. Uh, there is a way to combine both Bidens. But for Biden to be very clear about the role of this administration in allowing this pandemic to unfold the way it has in this country without sufficient testing, without ventilators being produced in, in World War II kind of levels to make sure our hospitals are in order, uh, without shutting down things earlier so that right now maybe we'd be in a better normal, uh, those all fall on the shoulders of the president. And Biden is uh, totally capable of making those arguments, but still having the other Biden there too, that, that he wants to get us to a place uh, where he can enact the kind of governance he promised during his campaign. Um, but he can't shy away from that. Uh, that that's just uh, kind of imagining a political world that doesn't exist. Based on his performance to date, both in the pandemic and prior to the pandemic, do you have confidence in his ability to combine those two Bidens? Uh, verdicts out. I, I mean, I think I, I do admit the campaign before the pandemic really struck was much stronger um, than I thought. I'm not sure it was all about him. I think he had a smart campaign team and there were a couple key moments such as that night when the non-Sanders candidates consolidated uh, and non-Warren uh, candidates consolidated and, and gave him his support and caught everyone off guard. There were really smart moments like that. Uh, and uh, I think he, he did what he needed to do to, to build that coalition. I think since the pandemic though, no. I mean, he has been almost absent uh, from the public spotlight. I think a lot of his appearances have been pretty uh, difficult to watch. Uh, I would imagine as someone, uh, if they're, they're a supporter of his, this wouldn't give him great confidence. He's not comfortable in this medium, uh, streaming from his, wherever it is, his basement or living room. Uh, and so I don't know how this is, is going to unfold. In the last few days, it seems like he's ramped up a little bit. He had an op-ed in the New York Times about what he would do. He's announcing, uh, I think, what his transition team might look like, and, and that's working. So uh, I think that's the kind of uh, activity that's going to be very necessary. But I am not convinced at this point uh, he will be able to handle uh, what, what's coming in the next few months. So he has said at the beginning of the campaign, he said that he would fight Donald Trump. In New Hampshire, he had paraphernalia that said he will beat him like a drum. So he started the campaign with a very strong pronouncement that he would be formidable um, and that he would beat the hell out of Trump. You know, I think take him back behind the shed, locker room. There was a lot of um, male ego innuendo there. Um, so it, it's not just a question of reviving that. 
it's a question of applying it to making the argument that he inflicted real harm and has inflicted real harm on the country. Um, but it did, it does seem like from the outset of the campaign, he was prepared to go there. I think, look, I think the, the line of attack, the, the machismo attack, I don't, I'm not sure that's really going to get him very far. Uh, and, and now, you know, he, he can't, he can't even get to a place where he could launch those kinds of attacks in any effective way. I think the way to hit hard in American politics is through policy. You know, one of the best hardball campaigns ever was Lyndon Johnson's 1964 run for re-election against Senator Barry Goldwater, an arch conservative from Arizona. And the campaign, Johnson's campaign, is notorious. It was pretty vicious. The most famous ad was the Daisy ad, which showed a little girl counting petals on a flower. And then all of a sudden you hear a government voice counting down uh, and then you see a mushroom cloud and, and they insinuate that Goldwater would start a nuclear war. And there were many ads like that. Um, but uh, Johnson did it and it was packaged around policy. He promised that you know, he would be less of a danger in terms of nuclear war than Barry Goldwater. He attacked Goldwater saying he would get rid of social security with the argument that Johnson would expand and protect the social safety net. Uh, so there are models that Biden can look to that I think are much better than I'll take you out to the woodshed kind of approach where <laughs> Donald Trump will win on that. He's great at that kind of thing. Uh, and he, you know, just look at 2016, the primaries. He, he eviscerated everyone who tried to take him on in that fashion. But on policy, he's incredibly vulnerable. His policies aren't working. His policies aren't popular. And that's where I think uh, if you're a Democrat, you'd be, you know, calling for Biden to hit as hard as possible on that front. Biden also has a workmanlike quality in being able to say things in a way, sometimes it's been called gaffe prone, but are intellectually honest, but also real, like, you know, and, and people absorb it in a real way. And I don't know that age is going to diminish his ability to connect in that fashion, where it's, it's Joe from Scranton, as opposed to Joe from the, on the Acela train. Um, but let me, let me just close with this line of questioning, Julian. Um, are you a historian who considers VP selection to be integral to uh, forging a successful campaign? Usually I'm not, uh, and I'm the one who will always answer the question saying it's interesting, it might have um, a marginal impact, uh, but in general it's not what swings campaigns. But this time around I think it's different in this moment, uh, this totally abnormal political and social moment, I do think uh, that the VP pick uh, might have, for many reasons, much more of an impact than in traditional years. So I've been on record saying that Biden needs the vigor and charisma of a Beto and a um, the progressive bona fides credentials of a Sherrod Brown. Uh, that's Beto O'Rourke of Texas and Sherrod Brown of Ohio. He has said publicly that he will choose a woman, and there is the top tier of recognized faces and voices, namely, namely Klobuchar of Minnesota, Harris of California, and Warren of Massachusetts. And then there appears to be a second tier, 
of less well-known women, Gretchen Whitmer, the first-term governor of Michigan, Stacey Abrams, the former state Senate leader for the Democrats and gubernatorial candidate. There, there are a sprinkling of others in that second tier, and there might even be a third tier. But how do you view the, the, the assessment of VP through that lens? Uh, do you think that there is one person who can capture the complementary needs of that ticket in a way to be successful in November? Well, I think um, it, it's it's complicated. I do think he can't go back on his promise already uh, not to pick a female candidate. You know, that would be replicating George H.W. Bush's going against his no new taxes pledge, although much quicker. So I do think he needs to stay within that realm. But but I think the the kind of need for charisma the need for someone who energizes the the progressive base is certainly important uh and it's important in new ways i think younger people might be more likely to get out and vote um this time around uh, given the health care concerns older people will face uh, but i think two other factors are now on the table he does need someone like governor whitmer as an example who is showing the public right now in real time they can govern through this, that they understand how to make the tough choices uh, and that they are literally on the front lines um, of this pandemic. I think in another era, Governor Newsom or Governor Cuomo also could have been part of the mix. Uh, but I think that quality is so important right now, not because Joe Biden is older and this might be the president uh, in, in the future, but because we are looking as a country now for a ticket that can govern. And so I think uh, picking from that uh, kind of uh, cohort, uh, and Elizabeth Warren, I think, can also fall in this because she is the person of ideas uh, and she exudes that kind of quality. That's the most important. And the second will be just help in the issue we talked about before, someone who can get on, uh, on television, someone who can really pop on social media in the next few months, someone who can help Biden uh, get the message of the ticket out there uh, in these bizarre circumstances. I think those are the two qualities that he's looking for. So I have no idea who it will be. Uh, but I think they have to fit those two boxes more than all the others, uh, again, because of where we now are. With respect to Liz Warren, it's reported that President Obama said uh, regarding the VP selection, it should be someone who has the capacity, of course, the heartbeat away from the presidency test, and someone who has strengths where Joe Biden has weaknesses. And to me, there is no one no woman better fitting that description than Liz Warren in the sense that she is a voice of, like you said, ideas. She has the kind of vigor, notwithstanding her age, that Biden ostensibly lacks. And in terms of commanding a presence to be trusted, what appeared to some as stridents or professorial, is now really the fact that CNBC was calling her in the days of the pandemic's depression-like immediate impact. CNBC wanted to hear from Elizabeth Warren, not just progressive media or liberal 
talking heads because they view her with seriousness. They view her as someone who can help get the country and the economy back on track. And so if it were not for the fact that you'd have a ticket from Massachusetts and Delaware and the fact that you would be potentially compromising a Senate seat in Massachusetts where there we have to pinch ourselves, remind us there is a Republican governor who will invariably appoint a Republican to that seat, even if there is a special election. Is it, you know, isn't it rather clear that from the point of view of, of someone with, with serious economic policy credentials, she is the one. And, and I just finally close by asking you if she is the one who most fully resembles what Joe Biden needs right now. Are you concerned about that New England factionalism and a ticket that can be besieged by the idea that it is, again, Delaware and Massachusetts? No, I don't think the regional part matters. Uh, I mean, it hasn't mattered for a long time. And uh, you, you can win uh, with a close regional ticket. Gore uh, Clinton is an example. I just don't think that's how American politics plays right now. I think she's an incredibly, I, I think she fits uh, so many different pieces of, of what you're talking about. She also will appeal to the, the progressives. She, she has a strong reach there, even with the tension with Sanders. And she does one other thing that people forgot. Her original issue was middle class insecurity on dealing with issues like middle class debt. And, and that's going to be one of the biggest you know, problems for most Americans, unfortunately, in the next few years. And it's, it's going to be magnified. And there is no one who speaks about that with the kind of clarity and intelligence as she does. Um, and so you can put her on, on all the time, not just to talk about getting through the pandemic, but how to deal with the economic fallout. Uh, and, and she has the credentials, you know, as people say these days, she brings the receipts. Um, so, so in my mind, she's just a very, very strong pick. Uh, and, and the Delaware, Massachusetts kind of combination, that's, that's not really going to be a problem at all. And because you are a political and historical junkie as much as me, is, I can't, leave the conversation without asking, is there any plausible situation or scenario where you think that Trump drops uh, Pence uh, in favor of someone else to be his vice president, vice presidential nominee? I'd be foolhardy to say that'll never happen because I've, I've said I just have abandoned that from my lexicon <laughs> in this day and age. I have no idea. I don't think so. I think uh, Trump for everything is savvy enough to know that he needs the not just Trump base, but the evangelical conservatives, the Republican right to stay by him, to stand by him in this election. And Pence is the person who delivers on that front. And he is not going to abandon that. And at least in the last few uh, weeks and month, you know, Pence has emerged uh, and, and many do not agree with this. And I don't necessarily agree with it, but he looks like the reasonable person in the room. Uh, and, and so I don't think Trump wants to lose both of those in one blow to replace him with, I don't know who, you know, Sean Hannity or something. But that said, <laughs> that said I don't know. I, I could have, I can't, I could imagine it playing out differently, given everything, given everything I've seen. Yeah, I, I'm, I agree with you 100%. Without Pence, Donald Trump doesn't win in 2016 and, of course, doesn't win in 2020. This sort of fanciful idea of Nikki Haley or someone who's going to 
make Trump more appealing to the suburban voter in the districts that the president president's party lost in 2018. I think that's wishful thinking. Uh, Julian, let's do this in person when uh, the pandemic is is hopefully over and we are back to our normal lives and, and healthy and well. I wish you all the best. Julian Zelizer, author of the forthcoming Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and The Rise of the New Republican Party, one of the most insightful and prolific authors and historians. Um, thank you for joining me today, Julian. Thanks so much for having me.